Father, I thank you for your word and how it came to us and it didn't come in words but it came in power and demonstration of the spirit and you've changed our lives because of your word and I pray this morning that um, as we look at this these verses um, that are can be really challenging to us and cause us to die to ourselves and are so countercultural. I pray that you'd open the eyes of our heart that would know the hope of our calling would see and understand things that we about submission that we never have before. And I, I pray that you would be glorified in our time today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, today we come to one of the scripture passages that Satan absolutely hates. <laughs> the world mocks and belittles those who follow God-ordained principles of marriage and family, and the chasm between the biblical view of marriage and the secular human view is gargantuan. I don't need to tell you that. Today we are experiencing a sexual revolution where society has joyfully and defiantly thrown off the final vestiges of Christian sexual ethics. And things that were once forbidden are now celebrated and things that were once considered unthinkable are now deemed natural and good. And the biblical view of marriage of one man and one woman for life is viewed as archaic or out of touch with reality by our world. So it should come as no surprise that our own sin and selfishness and cultural bias make it almost impossible to feel the wonder of God's purpose for marriage. The greatness and glory of marriage is beyond our ability to think or feel or understand without divine revelation and without the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. The world cannot know what marriage is without learning about it from God. So what a privilege we have today to study Ephesians chapter 5, where God reveals the mystery and meaning of marriage. Paul's recipients of this letter came from varied backgrounds. Their cultures greatly influenced their views on marriage and the family. Now, most of these Ephesians would have been from a Greek background, but we need to remember that the Romans conquered the Greeks, and so what happened was that the Romans adopted a lot of the Greek ideas uh, about uh, beauty and value, that sort of thing. So um, Tim Challies had a, a brilliant blog. I'm going to quote him extensively, but he says the church was birthed and the New Testament delivered into a world utterly opposed to Christian morality. Almost all of the New Testament texts dealing with sexuality were written to Christians living in predominantly Roman cities. And the Christian ethic did not come to a society that only needed a slight realignment or a society eager to hear its message. No, the Christian ethic clashed harshly with Roman sexual morality. Well, what was the culture of the time? And I'm going to warn you in advance, this is pretty graphic, but this is what it was like, and I think it's critical to help us understand the context of the text and what Paul is talking about because this is the world his readers lived in. So here we go. This is from Challies. Romans did not think in terms of sexual orientation. Rather, sexuality was tied to ideas of masculinity, male domination, and the uh, adaptation of the Greek pursuit of beauty. In the Roman mind, the strong took what they wanted to take, and it was socially acceptable for a strong Roman male to have intercourse with men or women alike, provided he was the aggressor. 
a real man in their culture dominated in the bedroom as he did on the battlefield. And he would have sex with his slaves, whether they were male or female. He would visit prostitutes. He would have homosexual encounters, even while married. He would engage in pederasty. We'll come back to that. And even rape was generally acceptable as long as he only raped people of a lower social status. He was strong, muscular, and hard in both body and spirit. And society looked down on him only when he, he appeared weak or soft. So Romans did not think of people as being oriented to homosexuality or heterosexuality. They understood that a respectable man would express his dominance by having sex, consensual or forced, with men, women, and even children. So the pursuit of beauty and the obsession with th this masculine ideal led to the widespread practice of what's called pederasty, which would be pedophilia, a sexual relationship between an adult man and an adolescent boy. This was a common feature of the Greek world, and it was adapted by the Romans, who saw it as a natural expression of male privilege and domination. So a Roman man would direct his attention toward a slave boy, or at times even a freeborn child, and he would continue to do so until that boy reached puberty. These relationships were seen as acceptable and even an idealized form of love, the kind of love that expressed itself in poetry, stories, and songs. So in the Roman world, a man's wife was often seen as beneath him and less than him. She was less a person than he was. But a sexual relationship with a male or another man represented a higher form of intellectual love and engagement. So it was a man joining with that which was his equal so that man could share experiences and ideas with him in a way a woman never could. So this was this pedophilia, all of this thing was understood to be good and acceptable. It was the utter realization of a man's character. Women were generally, as you can well see, not held in high regard in Roman culture. They were weak physically, mentally, that's how they were viewed. They were viewed as inferior to men, and they existed to serve as little more than slaves at times. A, a woman's value came from her ability to have children, and if she couldn't do so, she was quickly cast aside. So they, they were t we, women were treated as second-class citizens and little better than the slaves. Yet this system, evil as it looks to our eyes, was accepted and even celebrated by Rome. It was foundational to their culture. So to be a good Roman citizen, a man had to be loyal to the morality of Rome. So the biblical view, you can imagine now hearing this, how totally disruptive the biblical view of the family would have been to um, the Roman society as a whole and what, what we consider as absolutely detestable and oity, odious, they considered necessary and good. It maintained their culture. Well, so much for the Greeks and Romans. But historians also tell us that in Jewish culture, a woman was treated not as a person but as a thing. And she was owned by her husband in exactly the same way as he owned sheep and goats. She was absolutely her husband's possession to do with as he willed, and on no account could a woman leave her husband, although a man could divorce his wife at any reason, uh, at any moment for any reason. This was not the biblical view of marriage, but they justified their actions by taking a verse from Deuteronomy and twisting it around out of context to make it say what they wanted it to say. 
And the Jews had such a low view of women that a devout Jewish, Jewish man daily gave thanks that God had not made him a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. She had no legal rights whatsoever. So that's the Romans, the Greeks, and the Jewish view. But would it surprise you to know that Jesus' own disciples had a low view of marriage? In his absolutely stupendous book, This Momentary Marriage, John Piper says, when Jesus gave a glimpse of the magnificent view of marriage that God willed for his people, in Matthew chapter 19, go read it, the disciples said to him, if the marriage of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. It's better not to do that. So in other words, Christ's vision of the meaning of marriage was so enormously different from the disciples' view, they couldn't even imagine it to be a good thing. They couldn't imagine it. So with that backdrop, the Christian it's no wonder that the Christian view of marriage was earth-shattering in Paul's day. One man and one woman for life would never have entered their thinking about marriage and family life. But God whose ways are not our ways, thankfully, has a different view altogether. And Piper says the most foundational thing to see from the Bible about marriage is that it is God's doing. And the ultimate thing to see about marriage is that it is for God's glory. It displays his splendor to the world. And Paul is going to teach us both of these principles today in our text. So he's been instructing the Ephesians on how to walk worthy of the calling with which they've been called. He's emphasized that sinful attitudes and behaviors, you've got to avoid these things because you've laid aside the old man, you've put on the new self, and he's exhorted them to be filled with the Spirit. They are to yield to God's Spirit in every area of their lives in singing and thankfulness are two evidences that he cites of spirit-filled believers. So he continues his instruction in verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now that little word and tells us that Paul is not changing subjects here. He's clearly tying the truths about submission that follow to being filled with the Spirit. This applies to all believers, but Paul is going to apply the principle of being subject to one another to three groups, husbands and wives, parents and children, and masters and servants. And you probably know that the Greek word um, translated be subject is a military term. It depicts troop divisions that are under the command of a leader. And the verb tense that Paul uses means that spirit-filled believers are to continually and voluntarily place themselves under the authority of each other. Submission to each other demonstrates obedience to God's word, and it honors him and it displays his glory. And so Paul addresses wives first. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, can you imagine how demoralizing it would have been for Jewish and Roman women who converted to Christianity to hear that they are to be subject to their husbands? What happened to their newfound liberty and freedom in Christ? And on the surface, this represents no change from everything they've ever known. Do you remember when you first heard as a, that as a Christian wife, you were to be submissive to your husband? Do you remember that? What was your reaction? I would venture to say that most of us were not jumping up and down for joy. <laughs> Why? It's because we didn't understand that submission is God's gift of grace to wives. The scripture teaches that husbands and wives are absolutely equal in God's eyes. 
You all know this verse from Galatians. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's not saying that women are inferior to men, just as Christ is not inferior to his father. But he's speaking of a divine order that creates an environment in which marital partners will be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So wives are to be submissive to their own husbands. Now, Piper calls submission the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts, according to the way God's made you. It's the disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. It's an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative for our family. I'm glad when you take the responsibility and you lead with love. Paul doesn't say wives are to submit to their husbands if they are believers or if they're good leaders or good fathers or if they're loving and kind. You may be married to a man who's fooled the entire church into thinking he's a man of God, but at home he's just plain mean. You are to submit to his leadership as long as it does not violate what God has revealed in his word. If he's being physically abusive, that's another matter and you need to come talk to one of your leaders about what you do. But wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And the order of submission is critical. A wife's submission to Christ her Lord is always first. That's what motivates us to be willing to submit to the headship of our husbands. And if you are not submitting to your husband, you are ultimately not submitting to the Lord because that is the leadership God has placed over you. Wives, you may be more educated. You may be more gifted. You may have a more vibrant personality and be a lot more fun, but you need to die to that and be filled with the Spirit of God because submission involves the heart attitude. And it's not just going through the motions of deferring to your husband in decision-making. Jesus did not go through the motions of obedience with his Father. He obeyed him from the heart, and that is our standard and that is our calling. It is impossible, though, to joyfully submit to either the Lord or your husband unless you're filled with the Spirit. So in that sense, submission is a gift of grace because it is one of the ways God sanctifies us and makes us holy because submission reveals our hearts like nothing else. You see your sin like you've never seen it before. So Paul continues, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. And the husband's to take his cues in marriage by examining Christ in his relationship to his church. And a husband has a unique responsibility for leadership in marriage. And even though Christ resembles the husband in respect to headship, at the same time, he's different from a husband by, view of, uh, by virtue of his role as savior because the husband is not the savior of the wife in the sense that he pays for her sins. But he is like a savior in that he cares for his wife, he nurtures, he provides, and he protects. So the husband is head of the wife, and in that role, he's like Christ. Piper calls headship the divine calling of a husband to take the primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. So Paul continues, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, knowing what you now know, you can understand that the Ephesian men would have been absolutely shocked 
to hear this. Their wives were not the women they loved. They were part of a negotiated marriage or a business arrangement that was designed to prefer, uh, preserve a family dynasty or, or preserve family wealth. Um, their worlds would have rocked to have heard this. But Paul could not be clearer. The husband's primary responsibility is to love his wife. And Paul chooses the verb agapeo, which is the highest and it's the most distinctive Christian word for love. Well, how are husbands to love their wives? As Christ loved the church. Well, what does that mean? How did, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, how did Christ love his bride, the church? He loved her in spite of her unworthiness. He loved her in spite of her deficiencies. And notice what he has to do for her. She needs to be washed. She needs to be cleansed. He saw her in rags, but he loved her. He loved the church, not because she was glorious and beautiful, no, but that he might make her beautiful. So not only are men to love as Christ loved the church, they're to give themselves up for their wives the way Christ gave himself up for the church. Well, how did he do that? Think about this. Jesus was the one through whom all things were created. He spoke the universe into existence. He was worshipped by angels. But none of that caused him to not count the cost. He, he didn't consider that. He had one thought, I'm coming for my bride. I'm going to rescue her. I'm going to purchase her. I'm going to do what it takes to make her mine. And he died for her. And husbands are to do the same. So Paul is telling these men who formerly displayed their masculinity in, what we, in a, just an absolutely horrendous way, they are now to demonstrate their masculinity in chastity, in self-sacrifice, in deference to others, and in joyfully uh, refraining from all sexual activity except with their wives. They must die for their wives. And this is why God's view of marriage can only be understood by believers, because submission and headship are God's plan for those he loves. And again, the power for a husband to love his wife properly, uh, when he loves her properly, it can only come when he's filled with the Spirit. So what's the intended result of Christ unconditionally loving the church? It's to sanctify her, having, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she would be holy and blameless. This tells us that one of God's purposes in marriage is sanctification. He wants to make us more like Jesus. You are not fine the way you are, and you are not yet what God has created you to be. Someday you will be glorious and sin-free. So will I. But in the meantime, in the meantime, marriage exposes our sin in a way no other relationship can. And a godly husband can create an environment that encourages his wife to walk in greater holiness because he obeys God's word. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we're members of his body. Paul is saying that marriage is a metaphor or a picture that stands for something more than a man and a woman becoming one flesh. It stands Excuse me, it stands for the relationship between Christ and the church, and that's the deepest meaning of marriage. It's a living drama of covenant-keeping love between Christ and the church. And here's the parallel. God nourishes and cherishes the church because we're members of his body. 
Husbands nourish and cherish their wives as their own bodies because they are one flesh with their wives. Paul continues, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Well, why is this coming together called a mystery? Well, it's not a mystery because men don't understand women, and women don't understand men. No, we have to remember that in the New Testament, mystery refers to a hidden purpose of God that cannot be understood unless God reveals it. So the marriage union is a mystery because its deepest meaning was concealed by God during Old Testament history, but is now openly being revealed by the Apostle Paul. It's an image of Christ in the church. The original reality was God's marriage to his people, Israel, and so we have that picture of covenant. So Paul finally concludes, Nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So husbands need respect the same way wives need love. Respect honors the dignity of the other person and recognizes their inherent worth. And Paul doesn't tell wives to respect only perfect husbands, just as he doesn't tell husbands to love only perfect wives. So how do we show respect to our husbands? Well, it doesn't mean we never disagree, but it does mean we listen to and validate their point of view. We don't put down their perspective. So in the end, it means if your husband has to make a decision and he chooses something you don't think is right, you still choose to be respectful by keeping your disapproval to yourself, especially in front of your children. You can support the situation without grumbling about it all the time. It is possible if you're spirit-filled. And if it turns out that he's made a wrong decision, you support and encourage him rather than point out that your choice would have been better. I told you so does not show respect. So how are you doing with submission to your husband? Do you nag him when he doesn't handle things the way you want them handled? Do you criticize him to your friends? Do you undermine his leadership in your home with, his, with your children? And if you're not married or if you're a widow, would you know how to counsel a young woman about submission in marriage? All these things apply to all of us. So Paul, now after we've gone through the marriage thing, he turns his attention to the relationship between children and parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So even though we begin a new chapter, Paul is merely continuing his teaching on the principle of submission and servanthood as evidences of being filled with the Spirit. He teaches us that when a child is filled with the Spirit, he'll be obedient to his parents. So that kind of leads to the question, well, what qualifies, who qualifies as a child? And the Greek word means children of all ages. It doesn't mean just little toddlers. So, I mean, clearly when a man leaves his father and mother to get married, he's no longer a child under their authority. So I think it's fair to say that children could, would refer to those that would be considered minors in the culture in which they, uh, they, res they live. Um, Paul's speaking, remember, to Christian children because this letter is written to Christians. So these children have to be old enough to be true believers, understand the gospel and be true believers in addition to being spirit-filled. So what are children to do? They're, they are responsible to obey their parents. They're to listen. They're to be attentive. They're to follow their instructions. Well, why are they supposed to do this? Because it is right. It is the righteous thing to do. 
It's something that's essentially right and good in and of itself. And God is the one who determines right and wrong. And he says this is right. Paul doesn't say to obey only if your parents are Christians. He says to obey your parents in the Lord or for the Lord's sake. And then he addresses the heart of the matter when he tells children to honor your father and mother. Honoring parents is much more than obeying them. When you honor someone, you count them as valuable or precious. You esteem and respect them. And, you know, obedience is reserved for minor age children. But when we, even when we become adults, we're to honor our parents. Now, some of us have parents that are hard to respect uh, because they were terrible parents. Some of us have parents that are hard to respect because they're addicted to drugs and alcohol, and we've suffered greatly from their failures. And some of us have parents who are hard to respect because they claim to be Christians but lived a life at home that was anything but Christian. So just as wives are to submit regardless of the character of their husband, just as husbands are to unconditionally love their wives regardless of their character, children of all ages are commanded to honor their parents, and we are to honor them because it is part of our obedience to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, Paul continues, Why? So it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now, this is not a guarantee your kids are going to live a long time if they obey, but Warren Wiersbe says he was stating a principle, when children obey their parents in the Lord, they will escape a good deal of sin and danger and thus avoid the things that could endanger or shorten their lives. Um, God enriches the life of the obedient child no matter how long he may live on the earth because sin always robs us and obedience always enriches us. Well, Paul now turns to parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And the Greek word for fathers is one that's used to speak of both mother and father at times, and Paul's talking to those who are in the position of exercising discipline. Parents are told to not provoke their children, and that means to make them angry, cause them to be irritated or exasperated, It means aggravating them to the point of a brooding, simmering anger that's nurtured and not allowed to die. It creates grudges in them, and it just, they refuse to forgive. So um, provoking them means creating that kind of a heart in a child. Well, how do parents do this? Well, let us count the ways. By showing favoritism, of one child over another. Think about Joseph and the havoc that that wreaked. By comparing one child to other children, not just siblings, but kids in, the, kids in school, wherever. By having unrealistic standards that your child could never meet. By not fulfilling promises you've made. By ridiculing them or constantly criticizing them. By neglecting their basic needs or by physically abusing them. All of these things produce adverse reactions. They deaden your child's affection for you. They destroy any desire for holiness, and it makes them feel that they can't possibly please their parents, and ultimately they couldn't possibly please God either. So children raised like this live with a continual expectation of impending doom, and this was often the norm of both Gentile and Jewish households, with fathers ruled with rigid and domineering manner. Paul says, don't do this. Instead, you're to bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And bring them up means nourish them, nurture them, raise them up to maturity. 
Love them. Discipline means to provide instruction and correction to help them form proper beliefs and behavior. Great quote. If a man does not teach his children truth, others will teach them error. Parents are responsible to teach their children spiritual truth, and they can only do this if they're spirit-filled. Well, finally, Paul turns to the relationship between slaves and masters, and that modern-day equivalent would clearly be the relationship between employees and employers. And slavery was an accepted way of life in the Roman Empire. Um, at the time Paul wrote this letter, it's estimated that 25 to 40% of the population were slaves. Where did they come from? The vast majority of slaves were captured as a result of the Roman conquest. And remember, the Roman Empire went everywhere. And anytime there was a Roman victory, there was a new influx of slaves. Um, and th they occupied all areas of life. They could have been farm workers or servants or doctors, administrators, teachers, cooks, household help. And Paul, you notice, has no interest in overturning an unjust social system. But he is very concerned to tell those believers who are slaves how to conduct themselves. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of your heart as to Christ. And Christianity obviously does not abolish our relationship to existing social, political, and economic conditions, says Martin Lloyd-Jones. And the apostle even goes so far here as to say that our becoming Christians doesn't even automatically bring slavery to an end. He doesn't tell slaves that because they've become Christians, the former conditions are abolished. Indeed, he says the opposite. The slaves are to go on as they did before, but with a new attitude. They were kind of in the same situation the wives were in. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able to become free, do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Don't become slaves of men. Each man is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. So don't miss the irony of the fact that both slaves and free men who are believers are both slaves of the Lord Jesus. So as in the relationships between husbands and wives and children and fathers, the principle Paul's emphasizing is that of authority and submission. It's a manifestation of one who's filled with and controlled by the Holy Spirit. How is this obedience characterized? These slaves are to obey with fear and trembling. This does not mean being afraid or scared. It is service as to the Lord. And it is, though, the fear and trembling of misrepresenting Christ or not doing something well. Christian obedience is also not to be done by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Well, what is working with eye service? It means keeping an eye on the boss or the master, and if he's not looking, you do nothing, but, or the bare minimum, and then if, when he does look, you work very hard giving the impression that you're a diligent employee. And Paul is saying our motive should be to do the best work possible for the sake of pleasing the Lord Jesus. Our work needs to come from the sincerity of the heart. You don't work in a grudging manner. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And that kind of attitude is a demonstration of being filled with the Spirit. Well, why are they to work this way? Paul says it's because whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. God sees, God knows, and God will reward you for your service to him. 
Well, Paul finally addresses masters or employers. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander, and what applies to them applies to you. You, are, as masters, are to live with a fear of displeasing your heavenly master, a fear of doing harm to the gospel and to the kingdom of God, and you are to treat your people properly from the heart as brothers, never being harsh with them. Why? Because we are all his slaves, and each and every one of us will render up an account to him. This is how those who are masters demonstrate that they are filled with the Spirit. So ladies, uh, in closing, I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, as Christians, we belong to eternity. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. This world is not our home. One day we shall see him face to face. So let us say with the great apostle, we will be subject to one another in the fear of the Lord, whether as husbands and wives, parents and children, or slaves and masters. Let us live in the light of eternity let us live knowing that we are always in the presence of our master who is in heaven. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for this study, and I pray so much to think about, so much to cover, and so very challenging. And I, I pray that we would all remember that you see everything we do, and you know the motives of our hearts. And I, I pray that we would be women who would be motivated to serve you from the love in our heart by yielding to you, by being spirit-filled in every area of our lives. And I pray that that would, would characterize us and manifest our lives and would be a sweet aroma to all those who are around us. In Jesus' name, amen.